morning. Isn't it good to see our, uh, our pastor back this morning? And it's a real blessing and a privilege he's given me to fill the pulpit for him this morning. And also, by the way, happy Father's Day. And uh, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there this morning. I know for uh, Amy and I, it's a, it's a real joy and encouragement to see uh, all the men raising the next generation in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And um, it just it brings a smile to our face every Sunday that we're here and we see that. I'd also like to um, say Happy Father's Day to my own father. He can't be here with us, but he does listen every week uh, to the sermons, and that does bring him a lot of joy and encouragement, uh, even in another state. And I'm hoping that uh, today doesn't end that joy and encouragement of his when he hears the message. Let's... Uh, Let's go ahead and, uh, and uh, seek the Lord before we get into his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together this morning where we get to hear your will for us through your word. We ask that you would open every heart and ear to uh, receive uh, from your word with the intent to obey and that you would even use this clay pot to deliver your word to your people. Amen. Well, would you please turn with me to Psalm 1? Psalm 1 this morning. And I will be reading out of the New American Standard. Psalm 1, verse 1 and following. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and in whatever it does, whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Really powerful psalm. Uh, that we're going to be looking at today. Everybody in life is traveling on a path. Uh, Every path has a final destination, whether the traveler is aware of it or not. Uh, And not only is everyone traveling on a path, not only is there a final destination to that path, but the final destination is death and, for most, God's judgment. We will all die There will be a final end, a divine accounting uh, of how each of us have walked life's path. And uh, speaking of death, uh, did you know that the CIA World Factbook says 151,000 people globally die each day? That's a tremendous amount of of death. I wonder how many of those 151,000 have walked the right path, how many have walked the wrong path, and more importantly, how do we know the difference between the right path and the wrong path. And what kind of people will be able to stand before God when he evaluates and judges them 
post-mortem. Nobody knows when they're going to die, but everyone does die. It's not always the other guy who's dying. I don't know if you've ever considered it, but you are the other guy to somebody else. Um, knowing where we stand with God is an internally, an eternally important question to ask because we're all going to meet him at one time or another. We need to know what path we're on, how to walk the right path, and how to change paths if we're on the wrong one. In our passage today, the psalmist is going to help us answer these important questions and give us some encouragement also along the way. In Psalm 1, the psalmist describes two contrasting paths in life and their destination for a purpose, so that we can rejoice in God if we are on the right one or repent to God if we are on the wrong one. And the outline for Psalm 1 is is really pretty simple. In verses 1 through 3, you have the unrighteous path. And in verses 4 through 6, excuse me, 1 through 3 of the righteous path, and 4 through 6, you have the unrighteous path. Uh, A little bit of info about Psalm 1. It is wisdom literature. It's delivered poetically, so it's very colorful. It uh, gives warning and encouragement to walk a path which pleases God. Uh, It also introduces us to the rest of the book of Psalms. In fact, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 form the gateway to the rest of the Psalms out of which all the other uh, topics and subjects and themes flow. And speaking of themes, thematically, it even runs throughout the entire Bible because it talks about two kinds of people, two kinds of paths, two kinds of outcomes, and one God. And one God. So with that, let's consider verses 1 through 3, the righteous path. They paint a picture of God's approved person and the righteous path in life. They illustrate for us the blessed man's consistent conduct, his consistent delight, his consistent character, and why he is the way he is. Why is he like that? Let's look at verse 1. And we'll take this one little chunk at a time. It says, how blessed is the man in verse 1. This blessed state is from two perspectives. One would be from the believing community's perspective, Um, which refers to redemptive favor, and we would see that in something like Deuteronomy 27 and Deuteronomy 28. Uh, From the psalmist's perspective, this is referring to his overwhelming joy and his contentment in the Lord. Uh, The psalmist is reflecting on his own standing uh, with God and, and belting out the top of his lungs, blessed is the man, or you could say happy is the man. In fact, blessed here is so emphatic in the Hebrew that it defies the typical word order, which would be like a verb, subject, object. And it's smacked right onto the the front of this phrase. Um, Some render this as the man is blessed, but that doesn't really even begin to express the joy and the gratitude that this psalmist is expressing as he genuflects over the fact that it's been made possible for him to be in fellowship with God. Blessed is the man. The psalmist is absolutely floored by his standing in life. I want you to note, this man did not and is not blessing himself. He's not overjoyed because he's done something for himself. This is a blessed state which the man finds himself in. This is a salvific position, not just a simple feeling, and we'll get into that as we go along. Now, how blessed, verse 1 says, is the man, is the man who what? How blessed is the man who what? Verse 1, again, who does not walk, who does not walk. 
Now, there are, in Hebrew, two kinds of negation here um, that could both be translated as, as not in English. Uh, but that loses a bit of the information in translation. The two kinds of negation would be the word al in Hebrew or the, the word lo in Hebrew. The first one, al, means not now. The second one, lo, means never, never. Which one's used here? It is lo. It's never. The blessed man never lives according to the blessed man never goes. The blessed man never follows. The blessed man never walks. Never walks where? Where is the blessed man never walk? Verse 1, in the counsel of the wicked. Counsel, what does that mean? Well, it's talking about advice or plan or scheme. Uh, the sense is something that provides direction or advice on a course of action. Now, whose counsel, according to the text, is this? This is, of course, the wicked's counsel. The wicked or the guilty That's what he's talking about. It's the unrighteous, the transgressor, transgressor of God's law. These are literally the wicked ones. And Psalm 2, 2, describes the wicked as those who counsel together in rebellion against the Lord. The blessed man never follows this wicked counsel or takes part in this rebellion. I also want you to note that while this man's blessedness or his happiness is a free gift from God, and we're going to see that, um, it will be evidenced by two kinds of activities. So these are all just like subpoints underneath the, the main outline point. The, uh, the first one is disassociation from the wicked. Disassociation from the wicked. This is where we begin to see the blessed man's consistent conduct. This is the evidence of true regeneration and a changed life. This is not talking about you putting in your 50% to help God. This is not talking about you contributing to your salvation. This is talking about the blessedness of a life, of even a nature that has been so transformed that it will never again be like it was before. This is being given a qualitatively, completely different existence and path in life to follow because the blessed man's life, his nature has been changed. He also never, in verse 1, stands in the path of sinners. The verb stand used here is active in voice, just as it was for walk earlier. Um, the Hebrew verb uh, Ahmad could also be translated to take a stand. The blessed man actively avoids taking a stand in the path of sinners at all times. What do we mean by path? What does that mean? Basically just way. It's, it's the road of sinners. It's the highway in life the sinners are currently traveling on. It is the way in which one goes that leads to a destination, to a specific place. Sinners here is synonymous with the wicked, which are the guilty we saw. So the blessed man always makes a practice of avoiding. He never takes a stand in life with or as one of the wicked. Never. Because the blessed man's life, his nature has been changed, he also does not, in verse 1, sit in the seat of scoffers. The blessed man also actively, continuously, and characteristically does not sit down. He doesn't remain sitting. He doesn't dwell or live in the seat or in the dwelling place of scoffers. I want you to note that this blessed man of God 
does not hang out with men who scoff at the Lord who has saved him. He doesn't do it. Who or what, then, is a scoffer? Who or what is a scoffer? A scoffer is someone who derides, and in this context, derides the Lord. He is a rebel. He's a bragger. He's a boastful person. He's a vain fool. He is one who is determined to set himself up against the Lord. And we can see a snapshot of this scoffer's nature in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Let's just look at that real quick. It says in verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together. Sound familiar? Against the Lord and against his Messiah. And here is what their counsel is. It reflects their nature. It's rebellion. It says, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, these aren't fetters and cords of love to the Lord. This is something to be cast off and rebelled from. That's a scoffer. That's his corrupt nature. The book of Proverbs also paints a picture of a scoffer for us. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but I'll just kind of go through a couple of them. Proverbs 9, 8, and 14, 6 says, A scoffer is a fool who rejects wisdom, and rejects it because he's not even seriously seeking it. He has corrupt motives. Psalm 9, 7, and 22, 10 says, A scoffer doesn't respond to instruction. Rather, he stirs up strife by way of insults. That'd be like your ad hominem attacks. He has corrupt speech. Proverbs 1.22 says a scoffer is one who delights in his own mocking. He has corrupt pleasures. Because a scoffer's nature is corrupt, his whole way is corrupt. It flows out of his nature. The blind man does not walk with the wicked or stand with sinners or sit with scoffers. Now, there is some parallelism here in verse 1, and it is synonymous Along with that, all three verbs are active and continuous in nature. So the emphasis here is that the godly are never involved with anything wicked and sinful. And this isn't describing three kinds of wicked activity. This also is not a climactic uh, development from walking to sitting. And it is not depicting an intensification in the depraved activities of the wicked, although that happens. That's not what this is talking about. This is, this is also not God counting to three before he calls someone wicked. Rather, because of the parallelism, the verbs, and there's also a, a rare Hebrew accent used here to define the logical halfway point of the verse, the psalmist is profoundly portraying the totality of evil, giving us the big picture, the overall picture. It is the same idea with the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. A scoffer is a wicked sinner, and a wicked sinner is anyone who rebels against the Lord. The blessed man doesn't want this influence. I don't know about everyone, although I do trust most here, don't want the influence of the world. We stay away from certain parties and going certain places and doing certain things, taking part in certain conversations because we don't want the influence of the world. Same thing with the blessed man. This blessed man, God's man, doesn't practice spending his time with the wicked. This blessed man on the righteous path disassociates with the ungodly. The blessed man is overjoyed and content with his Lord, and he doesn't listen to or live like the ungodly. Now, so I'm not misunderstood. I'm 
not talking about associating in order to share the gospel. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. We should do that. We're commanded to do that. I'm not saying that we are better than them. What I am saying is this, is that if you're on the righteous path, you will not live like or find comfort in the wicked. That's, that's what I'm saying. That's what, that's what the text is saying. Now remember that we said, while this blessed man's, while this man's blessedness is a gift from God, it will also be evidenced by two kinds of activity. Two kinds of activity. The first activity was disassociation from the wicked, and that was framed in the negative. The next one, the second one, second activity, we'll see is framed in the positive, and that will be association with the godly. First was the blessed man's consistent conduct, now his consistent delight. Look with me, if you would, in verse 2. It says, but his delight. But his delight. This is a stark contrast to the wicked way. This is what we're being set up for. This is the light to the dark. This is the white to the black. This is contrast. This contrast is in what pleases the blessed man. We could say, but the blessed man's chief pleasure, as opposed to the scoffer, his joy is where? Where is it? Verse 2, in the law of the Lord, in the law of the Lord. The Hebrew word for law is Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. In contrast to the scoffer, the blessed man's delight is in God's word, God's self-revelation, his instruction book. Why is that? Why is that? Why is it there? Why is that what he delights in? Because of whose word it is. That's why. It's the Lord's word. It's Yahweh's word. His delight is in the Lord's word because it is from the Lord because it tells about the Lord. It tells us how to know the Lord. It tells us how to please the Lord, how to serve the Lord. If you love someone, you want to hear what they have to say. And what they have to say is a delight to your heart, is it not? Of course it is. Of course it is. And so it is with this man and the Lord. The law of Yahweh is telling him everything he wants to know, and that is a delight to his heart, to his soul. Also, this isn't the world's word, and that's a delight to him as well. This is exactly what the blessed man wants. It's exactly what he wants. You want to hear from the one that you love, so does he. The blessed man is consistently uh, characterized by a life of knowing God and doing his word because of his delight in the one from whom the word came. And the question is that we ask ourselves, does this characterize my life? What consistently delights you? Is it the things of the world or the truths in God's word? Which one is your delight? What does your heart beat after? Now, on this side of the cross, we know that Jesus is Yahweh. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but John 8.58 gives one example of this. Jesus clearly identifies himself as Yahweh. The Jews at this point in time already hated him. They were already challenging his person and his words and his works. He answers them by declaring his deity with the words, I am, which is synonymous with Yahweh. Uh, And we know that the Jews knew what he meant and what he was claiming because they tried to kill him at that point, although they didn't because it wasn't his time. 
Yahweh, then, is the lawgiver. Jesus identified himself as Yahweh. Jesus is the lawgiver. Jesus gave the law that this man is so delighted in. Again, we know that on this side of the cross. We know the name Jesus. We understand that. He knew Yahweh. If our path in life is the righteous one, our delight will be in Christ and his word. Uh, But to what extent? What extent is this blessed man's delight? Look with me in verse 2 again. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He meditates day and night. Meditating, what does that mean? It means to utter a sound, to speak, to read in an undertone, to see this man and hear this man meditating would be seeing him reading and talking about what he is thinking about. How much reading and talking? Well, it says in the text, day and night. The extent of this man's delight is that he is consumed with God's word. That's the extent of the delight. Night and day he's in it, thought, word, and deed. It's all about the Lord and his word. If we're on the righteous path, then your life will be characterized by a consuming delight in studying and obeying scripture. God's man will seek to relate to God according to his way, and that way is only found in his word, his word. We have to ask, does this characterize our life? Does this characterize our life? It it does for the the godly man. And look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, he will be like a tree. So they're using a tree metaphor. The Hebrew verb translated as he will be has an active quality to it, uh, which is sequential in nature as well. It could also be translated to come to pass, to occur, or to serve as. So it'll come to pass, it will occur, the blessed man's life will serve as or be like a tree. Now, why use the tree metaphor? Well, the tree metaphor was familiar, the familiar metaphor for the blessed life. And that would especially be in wisdom literature like this first psalm and all throughout the book of Proverbs. The tree is a, actually a metaphor for wisdom itself. And let's just take a quick look at that in Proverbs uh, 3.18. Proverbs 3.18. Speaking of the uh, profound benefits of wisdom, it says in verse 18, now this is personifying wisdom here, it says, she is a tree of life. To those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. This exactly describes the blessed man. But why does this describe the blessed man? Why does this describe him? Why is a tree metaphor fit? Well, a tree gives shade in an arid climate and fruitful sustenance which sustains life. The fruit of the blessed man's life is wise speech and conduct because he's on the righteous path. And that brings life to himself and to others much like a tree. This is not a self-made man. This is not a result of pulling on one's bootstraps. So what exactly has happened? How is this man so wise, so so blessed, and so life-giving to even others around him? The blessed man will be like a tree Verse three, verse 3, firmly planted by streams of water. 
firmly planted by streams of water. This Hebrew verb here, shatol, is really the heart of Psalm 1. Verse 3 is the heart, and the verb in, verse 3 is the heart of hearts, even of Psalm 1. This verb is passive in voice, and that means that the blessed man, who is the subject, is the recipient of the action. Something's being done to him. And this word is better translated as transplanted. The blessed man will be like a tree firmly transplanted. Keep this verb in mind, by the way. We'll explore its implications a little bit later. So the blessed man has been transplanted where? In verse 3. Where? By streams of water. Now, this, uh, this phrase in Hebrew is literally, and this is going to loosen the poetic beauty to you all, although it didn't to the original audience. It's literally by canals of water. Um, streams of water does give the sense. It is true and it is poetic, but this particular translation, I think, does lose a little bit of the meaning. These streams of water actually refer to irrigation canals. Uh, they're artificially made for a purpose. That purpose is of bringing life-giving water to crops and orchards. If you remember, uh, this is a desert climate that we are uh, reading about, uh, the writers living in. Water isn't everywhere like it is here. You have, to bring, you have to bring the crops to the water and the water to the crops. This man then has been brought to, firmly transplanted by canals of life-giving water for a purpose, for a purpose, life and growth. That's the purpose. Now, let's just take a look at transplanted a little bit longer here, make some observations and implications. Let's start with the most obvious. A tree doesn't transplant itself. Have you ever seen a tree uproot and self-transplant from one location to another? No, obviously, never happens. When something's transplanted, it's moved from one position to another position by someone, by someone. Who is the someone here that we're talking about? Let's do a process of elimination. It should make it pretty clear. It's not the man. Trees don't move themselves. It's not the scoffers or the scoffer. He's busy hating God. It leaves only one person, one person. It leaves only one option, and that is God. The Lord has done what is impossible for the man. The Lord has changed this man's position. The Lord has moved him from the unrighteous path of the scoffer to the righteous and blessed path. It was God who took this former scoffer, this former wicked man, uprooted him from the rebellious, unrighteous path and firmly transplanted him on the righteous path. How do we know, then, that this was a former scoffer? How do we know this was a former scoffer? How do we know this was a wicked man and a sinner? Well, there's only two paths in life. There's the unrighteous and the righteous. We're all on one or the other. According to God, you're either a scoffer on the unrighteous path or a wise and blessed man on the righteous path. There's no third option. No third option. And if you are on the righteous path, it's because you have been transplanted there. This man is on the righteous path, therefore he had to have come from the unrighteous path. This is a God-made man, and he knows it. He knows it. So there are two types of paths, there are two types of people, but only one transplant. Only one transplant. 
Why? Why two of everything? Two of everything else but one transplant. What's the idea there? Well, because transplanting is unnatural, for one, and it's also unnecessary, or excuse me, it's also necessary in only one direction. So unnatural and only necessary in one direction. This man finds himself so blessed because the Lord has supernaturally moved him from his naturally wicked state. Our natural position then, our natural path, our nature is wickedness. And it's impossible to move yourself, yet this man has been moved to the righteous path. By implication, he had to have been on the unrighteous path because that's the only other option. That's it. That's where, that's where we all start. The unrighteous path of the scoffer is the default position in life for all of us. There's no transplanting needed to that path because that's where we all start. That's what natural man is like. And we would see that in Jeremiah 17, 9, where it says the heart is desperately sick and deceitful. We would see that in Romans 3, 10 through 18, where Paul likewise talks about the natural state of man. Transplanting, then, is only necessary to change, is necessary to change one's position from that natural path to the unnatural righteous path. It's unnatural for men to be righteous. It takes a transplanting. Furthermore, not only has this man's position been changed, but his whole nature, his mind, his will, his emotions have been changed. It's a complete transplant. Where does it say that? How do we know that? How do we know that? Well, first, nature is now that of a wise, life-giving tree. It wasn't like that before. He was on the unrighteous path. He wasn't like that before he was transplanted. Because of the nature he, excuse me, because of his nature he has been changed, because his nature has been changed, verse two, his mind now meditates on the Lord and his word day and night instead of sinning and scoffing day and night. Because of the truth he is drinking in, in verse two, his emotions have been changed. He now delights in what he meditates upon. The divine transplant has changed his position and his very nature, out of which flows different desires and conduct. That's why it says in verse 3, the tree yields its fruit in its season. This here is picturing continual fruitfulness in every season of life, good times, bad times, triumphs, troubles. This new tree continues, continually yields new fruit and Sustained by the life-giving stream, the spirit and the word of God, the leaf of the righteous, it says in verse 3, does not wither. It never withers. That's the same negation here used earlier. It never withers. So potent is God's transplant and word that in verse 3, whatever he does, whatever he does, or in all that he does, in all that he does, according to this tree's new nature, verse 3, he prospers. And all that he does, according to this tree's new nature, not arbitrary, to the tree's new nature, and all that he does, he prospers. That's what happens when the Lord transplants someone from their default position to the righteous path. This man's nature has been changed, and he is living accordingly. 
It's living accordingly. He was a scoffer, but now he's been made a saint. He is a tree firmly transplanted, and he draws his spiritual sustenance from the eternal life-giving streams that flow directly from God. This man has been regenerated by God. No wonder, he says, blessed is the man. No wonder he's been regenerated. Now, having looked at the righteous path, let's consider the unrighteous path in verses 4 through 6. Unrighteous path, verses 4 through 6. And they show, by way of contrast, that the person who lives on the unrighteous path is corrupt and will be condemned forever. Verse 4. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so. The literal translation would be, not so the wicked. Not so the wicked. In Hebrew, this negation, not, is fronted for emphasis. It's the same negation as in verse 1, lo, which means never, never. Literally, never so the wicked. By framing this negation, the psalmist is putting a stop to the poetic flow and the peaceful scene of the righteous path, like a full-speed head-on collision. Are the wicked happy? Not so. Are the wicked blessed? Not so. Are the wicked successful according to God? Not so. Are the wicked fruitful? Not so. Not so. Not so. Not so. Never so. Oh, the wicked may sound and look as though they're successful, but the Lord says they are not so. The unrighteous path and all who are on it are completely opposite of those who have been put on the righteous path. People on the unrighteous path may think they aren't bad compared to others, that their good deeds may outweigh the bad, but God says, not so, never so. We only yield the fruit that's consistent with the path that we're on. The blessed man then delights in the Lord, but this man in one form or another, to one degree or another, scoffs at the Lord, scoffs at his people, scoffs at his path. Therefore, the unrighteous, excuse me, therefore, unlike the righteous who are like a tree, whose leaf does not wither, the wicked, the psalmist says in verse 4, are like chaff, which the wind drives away, like chaff. Picture drawn here is from harvest time. During wheat harvesting, the, path, the, uh, the part of the grain known as the chaff uh, was discarded. It was worthless, it was valueless, it was fit to be burned in fire. The psalmist is saying that the wicked are like chaff and that they are counted by God as empty, futile, unsubstantial, worthless, and their end, their end is to be discarded in the fire. If your heart's desire is not in Christ, this is describing you. This is describing you. That's heavy. That's weighty. Let's keep following along here. This is a heavy, weighty part of the psalm. The wicked are like the chaff which the wicked, excuse me, which the wind drives away. The wicked may seem substantial in this life, but God says that they are so empty, so hollow, so hollow, excuse me, so void that the ruach, 
the wind, the ruach, drives them away. It's so easy for God to dispatch the wicked that the slightest little ruach will drive them away. And there's not a lot of force behind that word, is there? Ruach. Just a little breath that comes out. All it takes from God to dispatch the wicked, the slightest little breath. Verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. While the blessed man never stands with the wicked or come under God's judgment because he is standing with God, it is not so, never so, for the wicked. They never stand with God, so they will undergo a judgment which they cannot withstand. The wicked are condemned, the wicked are damned, the wicked are doomed, the wicked reject God, so he will reject them when they stand before him. The wicked will be exposed, and they will be justly condemned for their scoffing at Christ. And they will be sentenced by the one they scoffed at to eternal punishment. Turn with me, take a look at this in Revelation chapter 20, to this very thing. Revelation chapter 20. Verses 11 through 15. This is judgment at the throne of God. This is the final judgment of all unbelievers of all times. John the Apostle's writing here, and he says, And I saw a great white throne, and him, that's Christ, who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in those books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Don't let that be your end. That is the end of those on the unrighteous path. Go back to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Verse 5 says that the corrupt sinners, that's the wicked, will never be allowed to remain in the assembly of the righteous. They will be excluded from joyful fellowship with God and the saints. They will never go to heaven. Now you don't have to turn here, but Revelation 21.8 tells us that all unbelievers will end up in the lake of fire. Revelation 22.15 tells us that everyone who walks the unrighteous path will be eternally separated from God and loved ones. Loved ones, too. People on the unrighteous path will be revealed in the judgment as unworthy sinners, rightly condemned by Christ, removed from God's graciousness, from his presence, from his gracious presence, and ejected from the godly forever. God says there is no good ending for the wicked. There is no hope for them. Is the scoffing and the unbelief, regardless of the degree, regardless to the extent, worth it? Is it worth all of this? 
Oh, beloved, remember we were transplanted by the gracious gardener. We were transplanted. It's not because of us, it's because of him. Don't look down on people on the unrighteous path. Don't do that. Rather, look at the end of the unrighteous. We just saw the end of it. And I would say, how dare we settle for making a lost person our friend? How dare we do that? Warn him, beg him, plead with him, plead for his soul, but don't hate him by just settling for friendship. That, that's not what we do. You, you know what's going to happen when he or she dies. You know. You can read it. Tell them. Tell them about it. Tell them. Look at verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. In verse 6 here is a summary of the two paths in life. The Lord knows the path, the way of the righteous. That means God has a personal and intimate relationship with the blessed person, and he's involved in every facet of their lives in order to make them that tree which is always fruitful for him. Personal, intimate involvement in the believer's life. God will preserve and protect that tree as any good gardener would preserve and protect, protect a tree that he has just planted. And ultimately that means that God will bring that one who he has made righteous to heaven with him. Second half of verse 6. But the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. It's in contrast again. So deadly serious are the consequences to walking the unrighteous path. The psalmist gives us one last warning. One last warning about its end. This is the second gracious warning from the Lord. Perish. What does perish mean? Abad is the word. The wicked will undergo destruction as we have read. And also, it's also used to describe the loss of strength and knowledge. And when used in the context here of post-mortem destruction, it pictures the unending eternal destruction of the wicked. This is not annihilationism. This is saying that the wicked will suffer real relentless torment in a real place called hell under the real wrath of God. And it will never end. The wicked will perish because they love their scoffing in front instead of Christ. So let me, let me close with this. This is really, really heavy. But there is some encouragement. In fact, there's a lot of encouragement here. I don't know if you realized this as we were going through it or not, but there's an encouragement in the Psalms for people on both paths. Oh, there's a very strong warning, and I think we're feeling the weight of that, but there's also an encouragement. For the believer, what's the encouragement? Be encouraged that you're on the right path with the Lord because he's made you that way. He saved you. He put you there. He has put you into his personal care. He's placed you in the life-giving stream of his saving love. He has opened your eyes to the truth and delight of himself and his word. 
Meditate on that. Think on that. Read on that. Be consumed with that. Live accordingly. Love accordingly. And anticipate the day when the divine gardener finally brings us home to meet with him. To the unbeliever, what's the encouragement here? What's the encouragement to the unbeliever? We already know our default path is wickedness. We already know we can't do anything to change our default path, our default position. And we already know that that path only leads to death and divine judgment. Where's the encouragement? Where is it? Here's the encouragement. You can receive a transplant too. You can receive a transplant too. But how do I receive a life-giving transplant? Here it is. You ask. You ask. Be willing to turn from your rebellion to Christ and ask. Here's some more encouragement. He is gracious. He is merciful. He does save. Other scoffers before you have been saved. The psalmist is one, was one. I was one. Many here were scoffers. And he, he saved, didn't he? That's an encouragement. And he gives, we'll end like the psalmist ends with a warning. At the same time, he is God. He is righteous. And if you spurn him, you will perish with the wicked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you, you, save, you have saved even one person as you weren't required to do it. But you did. You sent your son who lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death on the cross for his people, and rose again on the third day, proving that you were satisfied with his sacrifice so that his people could be saved. We thank you for that. We thank you that we will live with you in heaven after death. And we then pray for the unbelieving ones among us that you would awaken their heart to the sin that's within it, that you would graciously draw them, bring them to yourself, that you would grant them repentance and you would transplant them from their default wicked position to the holy, righteous path. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.